0: Good morning. It is great to see all of you here this morning. Uh, I am genuinely excited to share what God has laid on my heart for you all today. This is something that has been part of my personal study for a while now, and it's just sort of a thing that I've been excited for an opportunity to share, and it felt like God was saying, this is the time to do that. And so I'm, I'm excited Um, I know last time I spoke, I was a little ambitious. We tried to cover half of a book of the Bible in one go. That was a lot. So today we're just going to cover the whole Bible. (laughs) And if you're laughing, it's because you don't know me well enough to know I'm serious. So uh, I have three goals for our time together today. First, I want to show you some of the big picture of the Bible, because we can get in the weeds on some things and we can lose sight that the Bible is one story, and it is cohesively one story. I want you to to see that in a really tangible way today. Second, I want to demonstrate for you that one of the primary messages of the Bible is that God keeps his promises. God is faithful, and when he says he's going to do something, he does it. It might take a while because he's decided to partner with people who don't always obey, but he always keeps his promises. And then third, this is a little bit of a selfish one, I guess, uh, but I'm hoping that I can blow a couple people's minds this morning, just, just enough that it will inspire you to go back to the Bible and to really start to study this stuff on your own. Because what I want to show you this morning is sort of a red thread that runs throughout Scripture, and it's by no means the only one. I think it's just one of the big ones. But once you see some of this stuff, it can't be unseen. And then you go back and you start studying, and then suddenly there there it is, and there it is again. It's everywhere, right? I'm hoping to to help you kind of see that and maybe just get you excited and fascinated by Scripture again so that you'll go back and you'll start looking for this stuff there. So I want to do that by primarily looking at the temptation of Jesus in Luke chapter 4 and before you go turning there it's going to be a minute before we get there all right so go ahead and take your thumbs loosen them up a little bit because we're going to be all over the place and I I wasn't joking when I said we all over the Bible so go ahead and we're going to start on way on our way to Luke 4 we're going to start in Genesis 1 I'm not this is not we're not going chapter by chapter don't worry but to, to get to the significance of Luke 4 and the temptation of Jesus, because it's such an odd passage, if we're honest, right? We're like, I mean, Jesus, he went to the desert, and then some stuff happened, and the devil was there, and they, they had this, like, rap battle with, like, they're quoting scripture back and forth at each other, and then the devil leaves because he gets frustrated. I don't know what to do with that, to be honest, right? The, the, only, the reason we don't know what to do with that, partly, is because we lack context for what leads up to that moment, And in my opinion, and I'm sure there are those who would disagree with me, but in my opinion, the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness is actually the pivot point from the Old Testament to the New Testament. That everything that happens after the temptation of Jesus is sort of, we're on mission and we're moving forward into everything that happens and has yet to happen. That it's at that moment that everything shifts. Not the cross, necessarily. I think it happens way before that. I think we'll see why here. But the context that leads us up to that moment is, honestly, pretty much the entirety of the Old Testament. And I'm going to show you by looking at some snippets. So we're going to Genesis chapter 1. Let's look specifically at verse 28. I'm not going to take the time to read all of these references, but I do want you to go there and see it as I paraphrase, because I want you to see what's there. Right in the very first chapter of the Bible, God makes a promise to humanity. He's talking to Adam as the representative of humanity, and Adam is, in other places in Scripture, referred to as the Son of God, and that's a term we're going to see over and over again. But it just means that Adam is is special, even amongst other humans, in that he is sort of the liaison. He's God's created liaison between the spiritual realm and the, the physical realm. That's part of what Adam's role is in the garden, in that sacred space. And so God makes a promise to Adam, and therefore to all humanity. He promises Adam specifically three things. And and this this is true for all of humanity. He promises Adam, if you read the verse, blessing, seed, which is another way in the Old Testament economy of basically talking about family, and land. Do you see that in this passage? These are the three things that God promises to humanity, blessing, seed, and land. Now, it's interesting when we get just two chapters away, and we can all sort of call this up. We don't need to go there. But Genesis chapter 3 is the fall. What happens as a result of the fall? Instead of blessing, what happens? Curses. Specifically, curses on what? What is cursed for Adam? The land. What is cursed for Eve? Childbearing, seed. So the very promises of God are now sort of, set back. Now, it doesn't, it doesn't negate the promise. The promise is still there. But the very thing that God said, I'm going to do this, because of disobedience, now sort of gets reset a little bit. And as a result of the curse on Eve, God also makes an additional promise. He says in Genesis chapter 3 that he will, through, he will bring about one through the woman, through the seed of the woman, who will crush the serpent's head. The serpent will bruise his heel, but he will crush the serpent's head. And so, what we're supposed to be looking for from Genesis 3 onward throughout the rest of human history is a serpent crusher. The the question that everyone who's reading this in the original audience stuff is asking once they get past Genesis 3 is not when is it going to happen, or it's who is it? God said he's going to bring a serpent crusher. Who is it going to be? And so... Throughout the Old Testament, we're going to see potential serpent crushers pop up again and again and again who foreshadow different things, starting with Noah. Hop over to Genesis chapter 9. There's a lot of similarity and overlap between Adam and Noah. Let me just give you a few. Noah, after the flood, gets off the ark. And do you know what he does? Does anyone recall what what Noah does? As soon as he gets off the ark and he's on dry land... He builds what? He builds an altar. So as Adam acted as a sort of priestly liaison between the the spiritual realm and the human realm, the first thing Noah does when he gets off the ark is he, he basically assumes a priestly role. Offering a sacrifice is something a priest does. But just like Adam, there's also a fall and nakedness and shame. These aren't accidents. We're supposed to think of Adam when we're reading this about Noah. Noah is following in some ways, not always good ones, in Adam's footsteps. But notice in Genesis 9.1, what does God promise Noah? He reiterates to Noah the exact same promise that he makes to Adam. He says, I will give you blessing, land, and family, seed. I'm going to multiply you. On the land that I'm going to give you. So is Noah the serpent crusher? No, but he foreshadows the serpent crusher in some very key ways and so we're left a little bit disappointed after the story of Noah that goes well he could have been maybe but he failed in some pretty key ways and so he foreshadows the one to come but he isn't that one. In fact his descendants end up leading to the Tower of Babel who is a spectacular rebellion. In terms of, of spiritual disobedience toward God. And so it's definitely not Noah, but Noah hints at it. Now turn to Genesis chapter 12. And I'm gonna turn there, we're gonna look at a couple of these. This is when we get to Abram, before God gives him a new name. Genesis chapter 12, and we're just gonna look at the very first two verses of this chapter. Now the Lord said to Abram, Get out. From your country, your relatives, and your father's household to the what? Land that I will show you. And then I will make you into what? A great nation. What's that? Seed, family. And I will make your name great so that you will exemplify. Uh, sorry, I skipped over part of verse. Two. Yeah, no, I will make you into a great nation. Uh, your name great so that you will exemplify divine blessing. Blessing, land, and seed. Same promise same promise. And so we're supposed to think of Abram and go, is he the one? God made the same promise to him. Is he the one that's going to bring about this ultimate blessing and stuff? Is he going to be the serpent crusher? No. <laughs> it does say that in Genesis 15:6, Abram believed God when he promised him that he would bring about this family and this land. But then he goes and he takes matters into his own hands. We remember Hagar and Ishmael, right? God, uh, Abram doesn't fully lean into the promises of God here. He, he fails. And so again, he hints, he foreshadows the serpent crusher in some very important ways, but he himself leaves us once again disappointed. So now we get to Moses and Israel. We're hopping books here. Go to Exodus chapter four. Before we dive into the, the meat of this part, I just want us to look at one phrase in Exodus chapter four lest you think that I'm creating connections where there are none. We're going to be looking specifically at Exodus 4, verses 22 and 23. It reads, And I said to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. But since you have refused to let him go, I will surely kill your son, your firstborn. Now on the way, at a place where they stopped for the night, the Lord met Moses uh, and sought to kill him. So, What I'm sorry, I read 23 and 24. That was awkward. 22 and 23. 22 says, You must say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. There it is. That's what we were going for. In scripture, Israel, the corporate nation of Israel, is referred to as Son of God, my son. He's called that in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22. So now, again, if we're remembering the promise in the context, where are we thinking? Takes us all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Oh, okay. We've got Adam, and then we've got Noah, now we've got Abram. Now corporate Israel is called the Son of God. And let's go to Deuteronomy 6. Famous passage, the Shema, right? Deuteronomy 6. When Israel is led from the wilderness, they're given the law. One of the first things that God says to them, Now these are the commandments, the statutes and ordinances that the Lord your God instructed me, this is Moses, to teach you so that you may carry them out in the land where you are headed, so that you may revere the Lord your God and keep all his statutes and commandments that I am giving you, your children and your grandchildren, all your lives to prolong your days. Pay attention, Israel, and be careful to do this so that it may go well with you and that you may increase greatly in number, as the Lord God of your ancestors said to you, and you will have land flowing with milk and honey. Sounds like blessing land and seed to me. So Israel is the recipient of these promises again. Once again, God says, look, I'm bringing it. I'm going to give it to you, but you need to obey me, okay? Now we know what happens with Israel. They fail pretty spectacularly. Like We're seeing a pattern here, right? Israel fails to depend on God, they fail to be obedient to God, and as a direct result, they end up wandering in the wilderness uh, and dying. So, so you see, we'll, we'll see here like this inversion of things, right? That instead of Israel um, experiencing abundance that God promised them, they go hungry. Instead of experiencing a land that God promised them, they end up homeless, And everything that God said, I want to give this to you, this is my promise to you, because of their disobedience and really their disbelief, they they fail to realize. Even Moses himself doesn't enter the promised land. So Israel and Moses, in some key ways again, they foreshadow this serpent crusher, but they leave us disappointed. One more. We're going to jump way ahead now to 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is God's promise to David. Can't leave out David. <laughs> the Davidic covenant is a very important one. Second Samuel 7. My pages will stop sticking together here. We're going to be in verses 10, uh, starting, starting in verse 10. Second Samuel seven. There we go. There we go. Verse ten. God says, "I will establish a place for my people Israel and settle them there, and they will live there and not be disturbed anymore. Violent men will not oppress them again, as they did in the beginning." And during that time, when I appointed judges to lead my people, Israel, instead, I will give you relief from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that He Himself will build a, dy- a dynastic house for you. When the time comes for you to die, I will raise up your descendant, one of your own sons, to succeed you, and I will establish His kingdom. I will build a house for My name, and I will make His dynasty permanent. I will become His father, He will become My son, and when He sins, I will correct Him with the rod of men with the wounds inflicted by human beings. But my loyal love will not be removed from him as I removed it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will stand before me permanently. Your dynasty will be permanent. This is what Nathan promises to David through the Lord. And again, contained within this are elements of blessing, permanent blessing, land, and family. Kingdom and a family name and a lineage that's going to continue on Forever. It takes a while to get from David all the way through the Kings, uh, but eventually this is where the Old Testament sort of lets out. And at the end of the Old Testament, we're left still disappointed because we've seen hints of this serpent crusher. But no one who has stood up, who's had elements of this, has has fully realized the role, and they failed in some pretty spectacular ways. But the promise of God is still, it's still there. And so we move into the New Testament and the life of Jesus still waiting. The people of God are still waiting. When are we going to be delivered? Namely from Rome, and of course in the context in which Jesus lived, but this is the moment, right? They're still looking for the serpent crusher. So that's the far context that leads us up to Luke 4. The immediate context, the near context that leads us to Luke 4 and Jesus' temptation is Luke chapter 3. And this is where When we understand the far context, the near context makes a little bit more sense. Have you ever looked at Luke 3 and been like, why three chapters in, dude? Like, I understand prologue from a movie standpoint, right? But you don't start act one, get like 15 minutes into the action, and then stop and go back and do prologue. You're completely killing the momentum here, Luke. What are you doing, right? Why is a genealogy of all things the majority of Luke chapter 3? Makes no sense. Unless it does. Because what Luke is tracing when he does this genealogy, because it's not exhaustive. None of the genealogies hardly are in Scripture. So what is Luke saying? Luke is telling us, especially because the end of Luke chapter 3 ends with the son of Adam, the son of God. There's that phrase again. We're supposed to think of the promise, right? The serpent crusher. What is Luke saying? Well, he names all the key players along the way. Luke is presenting to us Jesus as the next in line to step into this role as the potential serpent crusher. Lucas said, you know, all the stuff that came before, it's all led to him. Jesus is here now. And we're supposed to be thinking of that as we get to, here's Jesus. He's next in line. So, when the, when the serpent... Gets wind because what also happens in Luke chapter 3? Jesus is baptized and the Father speaks directly from heaven, says, This is my Son. Well, that ought to get the serpent's attention, probably the whole spiritual realm's attention. Uh, Jesus, this, this Jesus guy, is uh, now officially declared to be the Son of God that the Father, the Most High, is pleased with, and he's on the scene and he's declaring a kingdom. He could be the serpent crusher. So the serpent comes to investigate. And that is what leads us into this interaction in the first 14 verses of Luke chapter 4. Now, I want us to see that when something happens in our life, just as it did with Jesus here, and you can go ahead and turn toward Luke chapter 4 now, we're finally there. When something happens in our life, It is not necessarily for a single purpose. Uh, Different people may have different intentions for that thing that is happening in your life right now. And we know that because in this passage in particular, the Holy Spirit had intentions for what this moment would, would accomplish, but so did Satan. And they were very different intentions. Jesus is presented as He's the one, not just a foreshadowing of the one to come. He is the one to come. And Satan says, well, "Let's see about that." So Satan's intention in this in this moment when he is tempting Jesus is to test Jesus's candidacy as the serpent crusher and to disqualify him. Let's get let's let's just get done with this Jesus person and we'll and then we'll figure out what what's going to come later, but I need to see if this guy's worth my time, right? Is he really the one to come? Is he really the promised one? But the Holy Spirit's intention for this interaction is to also test Jesus' candidacy as the serpent crusher and to vindicate him, to prove to everyone that he is, in fact, the promised one to come. He is the one that's going to bring all these promises to to, to fruition, the blessing and the seed and the land and all, all of it. And so what I think we're seeing here in Luke chapter 4 is picture an ancient battle. It doesn't even have to be ancient, but even medieval battles. Before Before we had air support and artillery and drones and all these things. In ancient battles, you had at most horses and infantry. And before, sometimes, we see it portrayed in movies, two kings from each side would come out and they would meet on the field of battle before the battle actually began to sort of size each other up and to, to get a sense of maybe there are terms to discuss here. What, what exactly is about to happen? They're trying to figure that out. I think we're seeing that here in Luke chapter 4. that Satan is the ruler of the kingdom of this age. Scripture calls him that. Jesus is the rightful ruler of the kingdom of God. And these two kings, so to speak, are coming out to meet each other and size each other up. And so... When we get to these temptations themselves, I want us to view them, and there's at least two ways to look at this. I'm sure there are many, many more, but I want us to focus on two different ways that we can sort of view the temptations of what's happening to Jesus in this moment. Let's go ahead and read it right now. Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Then Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan River, where he was baptized, and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Where for forty days he endured temptations from the devil. He ate nothing during those days when they were completed, and when they were completed, he was famished. And the devil said to him, If you're the Son of God, command the stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It's written, Man does not live by bread alone. And then the devil led him up to a high place and showed him in a flash all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, To you I will grant this whole realm and the glory that goes along with it for it has been relinquished to me and I can give it to anyone I wish. So then if you will worship me all this will be yours. Jesus answered him it is written you are to worship the Lord God uh, Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil brought him to Jerusalem had him stand on the highest point of the temple and said to him if you're the son of God then throw yourself down from here for it is written he will command his angels concerning you to protect you. He's quoting from the Psalms here. And with their hands, they will lift you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, you are not to put the Lord your God to the test. So when the devil had completed every temptation, he departed from him until a more opportune time. Then Jesus, in the power of the Holy Spirit, returned to Galilee, and news about him spread throughout the surrounding countryside. There's a lot. This is not this is an onion of a passage, if there ever was one, because you can sit and peel away layers and layers and layers of this and never get to the end of it. So I'm not going to try. I just want you to see a couple different things of just how so many connections in Scripture find this red thread sort of running right through this, is, this passage. The first is that these temptations specifically in this whole scenario that we just read has significant theological uh, implications in that Jesus, I think very purposefully here, is designed and portrayed to be a a direct parallel with Israel. Now, why would I say that? Well, for one, there are a lot of surface parallels when you start to look at it. The reason that we should be thinking of Israel specifically is couple reasons. When Jesus quotes scripture back to the devil, he only quotes from two chapters in the whole Old Testament. He quotes from Deuteronomy 6 and he quotes from Deuteronomy 8. You want to guess what the context of those chapters in the Bible is? The wilderness, wanderings of Israel in their disobedience. So it's not an accident that that's where Jesus chooses to, to direct our focus as he's answering Satan. Now, if that weren't enough, we also see that Israel, in Exodus 4.22, is called the corporate Son of God. Jesus is declared just a chapter earlier to be the unique Son of God. And have you ever wondered, why 40 days? How many years did Israel wander in the wilderness? 40. Israel wanders for 40 years in the wilderness. Jesus is led to wander in the wilderness for 40 days. This This is a direct, I think, on purpose parallel here. And both, Israel and Jesus, were tested in the wilderness to prove their obedience. Except, and this is the key switch, everywhere where Israel specifically failed, Jesus succeeds. Jesus is tempted by hunger. What was the first thing Israel complained about when they got into the wilderness? God, we're going to starve out here. Let's go back to Egypt. And God provides manna. But not because Israel really trusted. Moses pleaded, pleaded on their behalf. Jesus is tested with what? Hunger. And instead of failing to depend on God, just like Israel did, Jesus succeeds and he says, I will depend on God for my sustenance. I won't complain. I will not not fail this test. Again, where Israel failed, I succeed. What's the next temptation that the devil gives him? He says, look, you're here for kingdoms and glory and power. That's yours. All you have to do is worship me. What happened to Israel after they went into the promised land and they failed to obey God and utterly destroy the nations that God laid before them and said, if you displace them and destroy them, I'll give you this land and you'll have no trouble. Well, they didn't do that. And so what happened to Israel once they got into the land? They were led astray by false gods. They worshiped false gods. And Jesus here is being tempted to do exactly the same thing. Satan is no God, but he's asking for worship. He doesn't deserve it. And Jesus, unlike Israel, never gives it to him. It says only one one person is the object, the true object of worship, and it is not you, Satan. So no, not even for the kingdoms of the world, whatever, like not doing it. Israel failed, Jesus succeeds. Lastly, What's up with the the temple and throwing yourself down, right? The ultimate ultimate sin of Israel in the wilderness was disbelief. Uh, And and if you read Paul and some other letters, you'll see this. uh, It's specifically a place called Meribah. What happened in Meribah? Well, this is where Israel stopped believing that God was even with them. It had gotten so bad, and they're just like, God, is he even here? Is he even here anymore? And that's the moment where God's just like, you know what? I'm about to be done. Because after ever, after the Red Sea and the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud and the manna and the quail and the serpents and all that, are you really going to say, like, is God even here? Are you serious? They stopped believing. And those are the ones who died in the wilderness. And so they are, basically they fail at believing God, period. They just disbelieve God. Jesus is taken up and he's basically asked to, to test God. And God goes, I'm not going to test God. That's what Israel did in the wilderness. That's literally the phrase that's used. They tested God at Meribah. God's like, not doing it. Jesus said, no, not doing it. Not doing it. Not going there. So I want us to see, because this is something, totally a side note, by the way, this is something that comes up in theological conversations as we're talking about the New Testament. We're like, well, what is the state of Israel? Uh, and, And how are we supposed to think about Israel today? Has Israel, is there still a place for Israel? Has the church replaced Israel? Personally, looking at this passage, I honestly think both of those positions are probably wrong. I think the clear teaching here in this passage is that Jesus has replaced Israel. Everywhere Israel has failed, Jesus has succeeded as the Son of God. And the reason that we as the church are heirs to all these promises is not because we've replaced Israel, it's because we're the bride of the one who has replaced Israel. Paul says that we're grafted in, right? Well, grafting in is not just something ha- that happens in, in, a, in, in like a, a legal sense. Where else does the grafting of two peoples who wouldn't, wouldn't belong together happen? Marriage. Who are we? We're the bride of Christ. So the, the, the rightful ruler and riches and all the, all the heirs of the promise belongs to the bridegroom. We belong to him. And so, like, we've married into these promises, and that's why we are recipients of it in Christ. But I I think Jesus has replaced Israel. That's very clear here, I think, theologically speaking. But there's another layer, another lens that I want to put on this, and it has to do with the temptations themselves. And it can tell us a lot, I think, about how Satan portrays or or, uh, how Satan plans and and, um, intends to to tempt Jesus. Have you ever asked yourself why these temptations? Not not just because they have theological significance, and I think God sort of brought all this together. I don't think Satan was intending to test him in exactly the same ways that God tested Israel in the wilderness. I think God orchestrated that through his sovereignty. But, But from Satan's perspective, he has a completely different goal than the Holy Spirit. So why these ones? From a strategic perspective, what's Satan trying to do? I think it's very clear when we look at it from a, if you're a bad dude and you're trying to get at someone like Jesus, what's, the, what's sort of the thought process that goes along here? So first temptation. Can I get Jesus to compromise his character? How is, how is turning bread into stone or stone into bread a compromise of Jesus's character? Because again, if we're looking at Israel as the template here, If Jesus had been led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tested, to depend on God, and then because he's hungry, he chooses to take control, to take the reins for himself and to provide for himself, it demonstrates that Jesus has a fundamental lack of trust and dependence on God. And how can Jesus possibly go around proclaiming a kingdom where he asks us all to come with him and to follow God and to depend on God when he himself has not done that. He's not eating his own cooking, right? I've undermined his very, his character. He has no moral authority to establish this kingdom. Can I get him to compromise his character? Jesus doesn't. Well, that's unfortunate. So Satan moves on to the next strategy. If I can't get him to compromise in his character, can I get him to compromise his mission? Let's go back and look at that, that second temptation. Satan offers him all the kingdoms. What's Jesus here for? The wor- he's here for the kingdom. He's here to establish his kingdom, the world. And Satan's like, well, hey, man, we don't need to fight. We can just reach a deal. Easy as that. Let's just compromise, right? We'll just strike a deal, and we'll have this whole thing done. No muss, no fuss, all good. We'll just move on. How is it a compromise, though? Because Jesus didn't come here to reach an agreement... With the kingdom of this world. He came here to take over. He came here to replace, to conquer. So there's no room at the table for some sort of compromise and let's, let's all, you know, live together and get along. That doesn't work. Never mind that, do we really think Satan's going to honor his end of the bargain <laughs> anyway, right? Scripture says he's a liar. He's a liar. But if Jesus is willing to strike a deal with Satan here. His entire mission gets compromised and undermined because instead of becoming a conquering king who just takes over and establishes his own kingdom with his own independent rule of his own throne over his his kingdom, he essentially becomes a vassal. He owes the kingdom and the power and the authority that he has essentially to Satan. He's not a king at all. He's a puppet. And Satan knows this. And Jesus knows this, and Jesus goes, no deal, not happening. He's not going to compromise the mission. And so Satan then moves along to the sort of last resort. He goes, can't compromise his character, won't compromise his mission. Can I just kill him? Like, is that an option? Just wipe him off the table, right? And and this is not my idea. I've heard another old, an Old Testament scholar who, who mentioned this, and I thought, I, I think, I think it's fascinating. He said, I really wonder if this third temptation is Satan in a very roundabout, shrewd way doing some fact-finding. He's trying to do some detective work because he wants to know, can I kill this Jesus? Is that an option for me? Is it on the table? So he takes Jesus up to a high point where his life is in danger, and he says, Jesus, throw yourself down. I mean, Psalms say, God, his angels send angels, you'll be fine. What's he trying to figure out? If Jesus says, sure, yeah, takes the step, and he's saved, then that tells Satan right then and there in that moment, can't kill him. He's unkillable, right? Can't, that's not going to work, so I just need to immediately, like, we're going to move on to the next strategy. But if Jesus says in response to Satan, I can't do that. I'll die. Now Satan knows, okay, also oh, you can die. Interesting. Good, good to know. I'll keep that in mind, right? He's trying to figure out what he's going to do with Jesus because he won't compromise. So how can I get rid of him? And what I love about this is that the brilliance of Jesus is that he, the way he answers Satan, he leaves Satan with nothing, nothing. Satan leaves this conversation with no more information than when he came into it. And so Satan is utterly just flabbergasted, he's defeated. He leaves not going, well, I still don't know. I still don't know like what I'm going to do about Jesus. But Jesus leaves this conversation completely vindicated. He has established through this, this square off that he is the one, he is the serpent crusher, and he's coming for this kingdom. And everything that follows this moment in Luke's gospel is offensive. It says in verse 14, Then Jesus, in the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee, and news about him spread throughout the surrounding countryside. It's on. Game on. Right? The kings, they squared off. No compromise. Now it's time for Jesus to conquer. And he starts going, and he starts taking ground back, and he starts taking people back for the kingdom of God. Purely offensive. All the way up until the ultimate victory on the cross. But this is the moment where the whole thing, I think, turns. And from here on, Jesus is just conquering. He's just taking ground. And there's not anything the the kingdom of this world can do about it. By the way, unless you think this is unique to Jesus, Satan still tempts this way. As followers of Jesus, this is the same strategy. Just in the last year alone, can you think of, I don't know, any pastors or Christian leaders or worship uh, leaders who have failed in some spectacular moral sense, who've compromised their character in some way? Yeah, uh, and there's more who maybe haven't compromised in their character, but how many could we name who have now sort of redefined their position on certain, certain topics that are sensitive, shall we say, to the, this world's sensibilities, and they've completely compromised the gospel. They've, they've given away the game, right? Their, the mission has been compromised. It's not anymore about two kingdoms at war and you need to be freed from this kingdom and come into the kingdom of God that you were created for. It's now about, well, we just need to, we need to be good people and love each other and all those things. And hey, yes, but that's not the mission. That's a means to an end. The end is to become part of the kingdom of God, his sons, his daughters, because that's the kingdom we belong to if that gets lost in the translation, the mission is compromised. And then there are those who aren't willing to do that, and they're the ones that get attacked. Well, can we just wipe them off the board? Because that would sure be easier, right? Satan still does this. Because it works. For everyone except Jesus, it works. And because we are in Christ, we're targeted the same way, but we have the power because we're in Christ to overcome these temptations in the same way that Jesus did. And that's what he calls us to. So Jesus has demonstrated here in this passage that he is the one. He is the serpent crusher. And he puts Satan and the rest of the spiritual realm on notice in this conversation that there is no compromise. I'm coming to conquer. And that's precisely what he begins to do immediately after this happens. Now, this is the I think maybe one of the coolest parts of this whole thing. We're going to we're going to like pull out the tape we're going to skip to the third movie in the trilogy and we're going to, we're going to skip to the end we're going to like get a little sneak peek here in galatians 329 you don't have to turn there but in galatians 329 paul says that those in Christ are heirs of the promise and the question we should all ask is what promise like i think there's a couple in the bible what promise are we talking about turn with me to galatians chapter 3 verse 9 Galatians 3.9, and while we're there, we're going to look at a different verse just right after. Galatians three nine. Paul says, so then those who believe are blessed along with Abraham, the believer. Oh, okay. So that's the promise we're talking about. Abraham. And what are we? part of this promise? Blessed. We're blessed. Is that ringing any bells? (laughs) We've been here a couple times before, but it's now those in Christ who are the inheritors of blessing. We're skipping way to the end now. Go ahead and turn to Revelation chapter 7. Those who are in Christ, who are part of this promise, who are going to be blessed, we're going to be blessed in a couple specific ways. I want you to look at Revelation 7, 9. John writes, After these things I looked, and here was an enormous crowd that no one could ever count, made up of persons from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, dressed in long white robes and with palm branches in their hands. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 21. We missed it by one chapter, y'all. Genesis 1, Revelation 21. We're going to look at the first three verses. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and earth had ceased to exist, and the sea existed no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, made ready like a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, the residence of God is among human beings. He will live among them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them. Where does this all lead? If we are in Christ, we are heirs of the promise. That promise includes blessing, a family that we cannot ever possibly count, and a new heaven and a new earth. That's land on a scale that you and I can't possibly imagine. It's taking a while. God keeps his promises. The original promise in the garden of blessing, land, and seed will be fulfilled. And it will be fulfilled in Christ and in those who are in Christ. So, I hope that this has been some big picture stuff that maybe you've never seen or considered before. There are some serious red threads that run throughout all of Scripture, and I hope that you have seen one of those today. It's really cool to see this kind of stuff. This is the stuff that gets me excited about the Bible, because when you look at that and you realize that the Bible isn't written by one author at one time in one place, how in the world do you get this kind of cohesiveness, this kind of of everything just lining up just so across thousands of years and and, and dozens of authors and editors and scribes and different places in the world under different kingdoms and different laws. How in the world are we telling one story? It shouldn't happen. But here we are. And to see that big picture, I think is just one of the most awesome things that that should lead us to, to just reflect on the majesty and the glory of God. Only God could do something of like this. You don't get this with people. It doesn't happen. I hope that you see and are encouraged that God keeps His promises. That is literally the message of the Bible. God keeps His promises. Even if He comes to do it Himself, He will keep His promises. And so, when God asks you to trust Him, when God says that He has provided a way for you to be transferred from this kingdom of darkness of this world into the kingdom of God, do you believe him? Because God keeps his promises. When he says that this is the way it works, do you believe him? That's the question that we all have to answer. That's the question of Jesus Christ. Do you believe? And lastly, um, I, hope, I hope your mind has been blown just a little bit. And I hope that because of that, you want to go dig into scripture now and look for more of this stuff. Because like I said, once you see it, you can't unsee it. It's there. It's there it's everywhere. Once you you look, you will start to see it. It will jump off the page at you. And I I hope and pray that you do that because there is few things more encouraging than just you and the Holy Spirit reading the Word of God and having these connections just fly off the page at you. It's so cool and it's so encouraging. And I pray that you all can experience that on your own as you you go um, throughout your own study. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this time and just this opportunity to share the big picture of the story that you're telling throughout all of creation and have always intended to tell. God, I just, I pray that we would be overwhelmed by the scale of of who you are and what you have done, not only in your word, but what you're doing in, in history. I pray that we would be encouraged that You uniquely have overcome, and that God, because we are in you, we have overcome. That we don't have to be slaves to uh, the kingdom of this world, that you have made a way of escape for us through Jesus to become heirs of the kingdom of God, to restore and return us back to the original intent that you had for all of humanity when you made those first promises to Adam. I thank you that you have done that. We are so very grateful for the love and the mercy and the grace that you have shown us. And I just pray that we would leave here grateful and joyful and just excited to, to see more of you and to learn more about you in the study of your word. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.